This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Shi Zamo, a host for the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Yanis Varoufakis about his latest book, Another Now. Yanis Varoufakis is an economist and politician who, as Greek's finance minister in 2015, led the struggle against the European Union's and the International Monetary Fund's austerity and bank bailout policies. Another Now was typed up in 2036 in the format of reflection notes written by the secluded mathematician Yango Varro in the figure of a survivor, your opening used a few brushstrokes yet painted with such vividness the funeral scene of the revolutionary Iris, a consummate syndicalist, communist lesbian, in her red and black coffin. Her intimate diary was passed on to Yango, whose reflections became the bulk of the novel. It comes with its injunctions not to pass on the technical details in it. Under the backdrop of a dystopia that was English university life, Iris experienced defeat after the triumph of Thatcherism, a neoliberal regime which denounced all or any forms of economic utopias. A zealous rebel whose fiery spirit baptized Yango, she met her two comrades, Eva, a single mother from California recovering banker turned game theorist, and Costa, a techno um, evangelic and skeptic of surveillance capitalism, whose Greco-German accent revealed his engineering acumen and sensitivity to abuse detection. Costa, perhaps a bit more rational than mad, built the freedom machine called Hauptfen and its memory keeper, Crest. Its fraud in time space invites us to another now, which consists of no stock market, no labor market, and no banking. The intellectual and political debates amongst the three friends were collegial and at times even came close to the edge of convergence. But Costa's paranoia over the dehumanizing danger of potential monopoly by private big tech to enslave people only grew over the course of the novel. So much so that he invited one last time Eva and her son Thomas into the machine under a noble lie that he'd stay with them, only to return to our now to destroy the machine, then aboarding his Greek island retirement plan to the Sisyphean labor in London, paying homage to techno-syndicalists. If Another Now is a sequel to Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, in the original, you said... If entrepreneurs are time-traveling opportunists, bankers are their incorrigible travel agents. The gravity of our now lies in whoever masters the technology of our desires, controls the means of production. 
insofar as Hopfen is a science fiction instrument borrowing the present from the future, a chasm opened up in another now. One seems devoid of freedom, free will, and agency unless we engage in neo-Luddite strikes against the pleasure-generating monsters toward whom we prostrate ourselves. I felt dumbfounded as I sensed a loss of gravity when I realized that my exit of the other now returned me to the dispatches from an alternative present upon whom my mundane reality is contingent. As Costa's tactopia thrombos, collapses, and folds into nothingness except a black convex form on the wall, I, like the beast slouching toward Bethlehem, did not pass the Turing test, let alone surpassing the baseline of the Freudian pleasure principle. So Hoffman flipped me 180 degrees over, and Crest left footprints in the form of a sarcastic commentary on patent law. So, Dr. Varoufakis, if, if I use Iris Murdoch's words, if I am disciplined enough to see as much reality in the work as you succeeded in putting into it, can you speak a little more about the tiny strands of crest which made the operation of Hopfen visible? What is a, quote, river you can never step out twice, unquote? I'm very glad that you mentioned Iris Murdoch because she's my my hero, heroine. I've read every novel of hers and I've been profoundly influenced by her. And also let's uh, not hide the fact that one of my three main characters in the book is named after her. It's not a coincidence. So you pick that one up <laughs> and out. The expression regarding crest, it's like a river that you don't step or you can't step in twice. Is not mine, it is Heraclitus. The idea that everything flows, nothing is constant, everything is in flux, and therefore there is no such thing as one river. There's one river every second, nanosecond of time. So every, every time you step into the river, you step into a different river. river. This is my first novel. <laughs> I hope it's not the last, but it's my first novel. And I was trying to combine an answer to the question okay, if we don't like capitalism, what would the alternative be? Which is a very intellectual and political and economic question. But I wanted to combine this with a story that touches me before I can touch others with it. So this machine that Costa is building that I named Halpevam, and the original name comes from Hal, of course, from uh, Space Odyssey 2001, right? The heuristic algorithm and so on. And it works in conjunction with Crest. You see, the idea is this. I start with Plato, and I think that Iris Murdoch would have approved being a Neoplatonist. I start with the use of science fiction by Plato in his famous book, The Republic, in which he uses the ring of Gigas, the ring of a shepherd, has found, has stumbled upon in the forest, and he puts it on, and he realizes that he becomes invisible when he twists this a ring on his finger, suddenly he acquires enormous power. The invisibility renders him extremely powerful. He, he walks into the, the palace as an, an invisible man, murders the king, marries the queen, becomes king. And Plato's great question, or Socrates' great question, is, is this a rational thing to do, to use this kind of exorbitant power? 
That is a question. It's a very interesting philosophical question. Are you powerful when you use this exorbitant power, or do you become a victim to that exorbitant power? You can ask um, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Yes, you have acquired enormous power by being the CEO of, the Go- of Goldman Sachs, but are you really powerful, or have you become a victim of Goldman Sachs' own power? These are questions that resonate from you know, the, the ancient times. But Costa, my character, is not sure that Plato's ring, the ring of Gaius, is a good metaphor. Most people say, ah, oh, maybe I wouldn't use it. So he tries to create a, a mod computer-based equivalent of the ring that would effectively give you the ultimate power. It would create a virtual reality in which you inhabit. You don't know that you are in a virtual reality. However, when you're in it, you think that it is completely true, and you can have all the satisfactions, all your desires fulfilled simultaneously. The ultimate hedonic machine. Not only are you doing what you like, but you do everything that you like at the same instant. Right? So, yeah, this is why my book is science fiction. And Costa doesn't want to create that kind of fake bliss for people. He wants to because he's an idealist. He's a technologist, but also an idealist, as you mentioned. But he wants to make me, to shake into understanding the nature of well-being. And it's not, as far as Costa is concerned, desire satisfaction, which is what life, the good life is all about, the meaning of life is. So how does he want to shake us out of this illusion of what is good, what a good life is? He says, okay, here's a machine. If you join it, it will satisfy you forever. And it will give you all, you know, multiple pleasures at once, an infinity of them. Do you want to join the machine? The condition for joining is that you join it forever. Costa believes that most people will bulk, will say, no, I'm gone. No, I'm not doing this. And then they will ask themselves, so why am I not doing it? And then they will realize that life is far more important than simply satisfying your preferences and your desires which is what capitalism does, or promises to do. It doesn't do it, but it promises to do it. So in trying to imagine how would, would such a machine work you know, as an offer, writing it down, trying to, to look at it from a technological or a pseudo-technological point of view, from Costas's point of view, I decided that if such a machine were feasible, I'm not saying it is, if it were feasible, it would have to be able to tap into the collective consciousness of humanity into the collective experience of humanity. One person cannot contain within her or him all the data which is necessary in order to simulate every single pressure that is possible for a human being to have. So I'm a materialist, but it can be sound quite spiritual too, that all our experiences emit or come in the form of some kind of microwave energy which flows out of our brains and all those microwaves at least for a few seconds, merge when we're all together. And this I called Crest, and Halpervan was designed to tap into Crest so that the collective experience of humanity can be harnessed by the machine in order to give you the ultimate joy so that you deny it. And through denying it, in a very Irish murder kind of way, you can affirm what it truly means to understand the good life. You said in the novel that staring into the wormhole gives access to some hard, intimate truths that one cannot shun away. 
Karl Marx gave an epistemological critique of utopia socialism. He said our knowledge of the future is impossible from a realistic view to be formed, and maybe it's also even unnecessary because it has to be based upon historical development. So, does truth, purpose, or dare I say, progress emerge once? The distortions that we have around capitalism are removed, and I am saying it based upon your um, in economic indeterminacy, where you are disturbed by your colleagues for profoundly, I quote, anti-scientific attitude, end quote. And then in, in another lecture at Oxford, that your uh, economists are a class of mathematized theologian. So I may be posing an, an incredibly bad. Dangerous question that you have been for a while sounding the siren of secular、um, eschatology of the demise of capitalism. So, to what extent is it real, and which stage are we at? Are we in liminal stage, post-capitalism stage? If the latter, can you tell me about its afterlife? That's a rich, multi-layered question. Thank you for it. Okay, let me start by saying that I agree with Marx that utopian thinking is not helpful. I tried very hard to write my novel in non-utopian way. So yes, I do create a, a society which I believe we could have created after the crisis of two thousand and eight, but we didn't. But the society that、uh, I describe as another now. As an alternative to this now, is not utopian. It's far from being utopian. It is some might say better than this one, than the one we have. But you recall that I have a, a chapter in the book entitled "Trouble in Paradise." So my greatest hero in another now doesn't end up happy and glorious. There is a lot of discontent, and indeed. Till the very last page of the book, I am grappling with the question: Would we want to live in the other now? So, if this was a utopia, that would not be a pertinent question. The answer would be yes. But you can see from the dilemmas that I force upon my characters and the way that they respond, it's not at all clear that the optimal choice is to move to my sort of utopic society. In other words, it's not utopic. <laughs> it's just another society that we could have had. It's another now we could have had, right? Now coming to to the second part of the question, while I was writing the novel, I was already developing this very weird hypothesis in my head, or conviction, I should say, that what 1991 was for communism, 2008 was for capitalism. It's lethal blow. I wouldn't call this eschatology or teleology, for that matter. You see, you know, feudalism gave way to capitalism. The world didn't end.、Uh, there was no, there is no point in time where you can say, "Oh, okay, this is the moment when capitalism was born, and the moment, you know, when feudalism ceased to exist." We're, we indeed have feudal pockets in society now in different parts of the world as we speak. You know, three hundred years later. But I still think that if you and I were having this conversation, let's say in the 1780s, right, end of the 18th century, 
And we're having a conversation. I'm saying, okay, now we know that things are happening in Amsterdam. There's a new mode of production where merchants are accumulating a lot of money and a lot of capital and of, of power. That, that has never happened before. That we have the commodification of land. We have the commodification of labor in various parts, in England, in Scotland. And we were having this conversation, okay, so is this still feudalism or is it something else? It would be an interesting conversation, right? Now, it would be perfectly okay for one to say, oh, of course it's still feudalism, but it is um, commodified feudalism or industrial feudalism and call it that instead of calling it capitalism. But I still think it is helpful for our minds to be wrapped around the fact that back in the 1780s, 1790s, in Europe, in particular in Holland and in Britain, you had a major transformation, a great transformation, as Polanyi would call it. And a new name was necessary. It was useful. I mean, we could have chosen not to have a new name. We could have called it, as I said, industrial feudalism. Now, I am convinced that over the last 12, 13 years, since 2008, the great Wall Street, that what we used to understand as capitalism has changed so much or is in the process of changing so much that a new term is necessary. And I'm, the one I'm uh, using, and I used it in another now, is techno-feudalism. And this is the, 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 the title of my next book, which I'm writing as we speak. So I don't think, I wouldn't call it eschatological. I would say that, you know, the, the people like Costa and Eva in my novel, in another now, are cottoning on to this transformation of capitalism into something else and uh, reacting with passion to it. And when they come across what could have happened instead after 2008, which is my fictional another now, they're very intrigued. And they come face to face with some deep concerns they have about themselves, a little bit of existentialist angst, a reassessment of the political economy of the society. To follow up on some of the existentialist angst, Eva said good-humoredly, I'm always glad to see leftists abandon the dangerous idea that persons are equal in any meaningful way. So to ameliorate the environmentally destructive market mechanism, you introduced through other now corporal syndicalism, which runs on the calculation of experiential value, perceived merit points for allocating bonuses as legitimate, and the formalization of the social worthiness index a matrix used by randomly selected local citizens called citizens' juries. And you admit that they are the most vile institution in the other now to guarantee corporate accountability. Granted, corporate syndicalism, this one employee, one share, one vote, a rearrangement of the corporate structure snuffs out the tyranny of shareholders. I wanted to ask if there is an element of romantic communitarianism in it? And does corporal syndicalism rely on the better angels of our nature to fuel its community governance? In other words, how is it different from from a co-op? And what incentives are in place to keep the uh, workforce nimble, heterogeneous, keep the, the skills upgrade, also include diversification? The answer to your question, how does it differ from a cop is simple. It differs only in scale, not in substance. It is a cop. One person, one member, one vote is the foundation of cooperatives. 
the corporations that I envisage in another now are effectively cooperatives. So you're quite right on this. But it's not just that. It's something beyond that. The great problem with cooperatives is how do you scale them up? You know, you and I and another three people, you know, we can have a very well-functioning co-op, lawyers' partnerships, architects' partnerships, do this all the time within the capitalist system in New York, in L.A., in London, wherever. The problem is what do you do when you've got 300 people, when you have 3,000 people working together in one corporation? Then if you have simply a co-op structure, one person, one vote, then you must create a hierarchy. The difference will be with capitalist firms that instead of the shareholders deciding the hierarchy, it will be everybody within the firm that decides the hierarchy. Now, we saw that in Yugoslavia, for instance, between 1950 and the late 1970s, that model of industrial hierarchical cooperatives. It was a very interesting experiment. I do not want to dismiss the Yugoslav experience because for a couple of decades it worked quite well. Surprising well, surprisingly well. The thing is, I wouldn't want to live in, in that kind of world. It's not attractive to me sufficiently. I'm, I'm not prepared to go to the barricades and die on the barricades for this. Because hierarchies are always stifling. So, my corpus syndicalism is using technology, like the internet of the company, for instance, to create voting mechanisms which allow for efficiency for creativity, for spontaneity within the context of a non-hierarchical corporation. This is why I call it corpo-syndicalism. It's not just a co-op. It's a co-op that has anarcho-syndicalist non-hierarchical elements within it. And I go out of my way, I think. Maybe some readers have criticized me for overdoing it, giving too much detail of how these companies are run in another now, of how this could be. We have a great deal of difficulty in conceptualizing a company that could work along those lines because, you know, we are used to hierarchies. And it's very difficult. I've seen I've worked in a company where there was horizontal management. And one of the greatest problems we had was recruiting people who had never worked without a hierarchy. Because they were, the first thing that people who are used to hierarchies do when they enter such a work environment is say, okay, who's going to tell me what to do? And the answer is no one. And when you say no one, they look at you and they have a, a small crisis, psychological crisis. They really don't know what to do. We say, okay, look, go around, talk to people, find out what they're doing, work out what you want to do, join a team, form a team, and, you know, young people are very good at that. But people who have grown up in a hierarchical environment freak out. Also, if you think about it, the idea of one person, one vote is maddening to many people. You think what? The secretary is going to have an equal vote with a chemical engineer, with a CEO. Well, remember that back in the 19th century, Liberals were against democracy. The notion of liberal democracy is a 20th century phenomenon. And it really doesn't make much sense. Because liberals back in the 20th century, people like John Stuart Mill, did not believe in democracy. They believed that human freedom is preserved when you don't have mob rule. This is what they used to refer to democracy as. Where the hoi polloi had 
an equal vote as the enlightened. So it took us quite a while as a species to accept the idea that, you know, when it comes to elections, we should have all have one vote, independently of how smart we are, how much we own, how much we know, how little we know. That we have accepted. It took us a hundred years or so to accept the notion of one person, one vote. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to introduce this idea into the context of the corporation. And, you know, as far as equality is concerned, look, I'm, I'm somebody who has actually read Marx, unlike many Marxists or people who, who, who claim to be Marxist or to be left-wing who haven't read Marx. Marx hated equality. He hated the, the term justice. He, could, he had no time for it. He considered those to be bourgeois concepts. Once he had, he, he had attended a meeting of trade unionists in, in London, and there was this hapless trade unionist, nice guy, called Weston, who st- stood up and he uh, argued passionately for something that most people will agree with, which was a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. And Marx got up and said, what? What's a fair day's wage? And what's a fair day's work? Who defines fair? And then he went on to say, a wage is by definition unfair. How are they large? Because wage means that there is a segregation between those who own the company and who receive profits and those who do not own the company and who receive wages. So any wage is part of an exploited system. So I'm, I'm not interested in fairness of a fair wage. I'm interested in not having a wage. <laughs> so if, taking my cue from that, I came up with this corpus-syndicalist model, which answers the question of how does the revenue of the firm get distributed between those insiders, those who work in the corporation, and the rest of society, and regarding the insiders, how does it get distributed amongst the insiders? And it's not equal. There is a a basic income for everyone, a basic salary income for everyone, but beyond that, you have bonuses. The only difference, of course, between the bonuses that I am envisaging and the bonuses in you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Ford Motor Company is that those bonuses in my corpus syndicalist enterprises are decided democratically and in a non-hierarchical way. Yeah. Going back to Iris, who at the very end, I would, if there is a little bit more time, I would love to go to talk about the murder of Esmerada in Trouble in Paradise. So I'm jumping directly to the end about Iris' injunction against market, which is so absolute that she is for freedom from the market, not of the market. And, and she does so for the sake of a healthy soul. So in the last chapter on Exodus, Iris recounts one piece of memory of Thomas, where he embodies Glaucon's hypothesis that turns justice on its head, challenging the instrumental goodness of justice. Yet you, you contended that there lies our temptation to surrender in the Soho address, and uh, the weak suffer they must, which seems pathological. Yet I wonder, is it necessary? You said the boy's yearning for power compelled him to admire and submit to it wherever he encountered it. He's being chastised for his weakness of spirit. Not being a bully is like a great work of art that you sweat long and hard to produce for no reason other than you must. 
during the time before we met until now, I had the chance to read the Communist Manifesto, which I truly appreciate your introduction where you, you said Communist Manifesto is not morally chastising capitalism. So it's fascinating to me that you are making not a, politi- a political moral indictment against evil, but rather an aesthetic reason for goodness. Well, that's Iris Murdoch for you. This is the influence of Iris Murdoch on me. I don't think I would have been able to think that way had Iris Murdoch not impressed upon me. Iris Murdoch wrote, published a very small, slim volume once, one of her few philosophical works called The Sovereignty of Good. What you just described is the influence of her take on the sovereignty of good. That, you know, like an artist, a true genuine artist must overcome her ego, herself, in order to come to the nugget of truth that her artwork represents. Similarly, you know, a good mathematician must overcome her or his self in order to get to the bare-bone mathematical truth that he, she or he is after. And, you know, being good is a work of art in exactly the same way. It should be an end in itself. If you're good because it will allow you to gain stuff, then you're not being good. You're being expedient. You're being, you know, an investor. (laughs) Is there anything from another now that, looking back, you wish that you had discussed more? I wish I had the intelligence to discuss more the difficulties in the transformation. In the chapter of How Capitalism Died, which I effectively narrate the revolution of 2009-2013 that gave rise to the other now, uh, I did my best, I did my best to create a realistic global story of a global revolution that replaced capitalism with post-capitalist, feminist, socialist kind of ecological system. I wish that I had, you know, I had to say about you know, the kind of clashes that one should have expected to happen between, you know, regimes, police forces, secret services and workers, what role trade unions played, what happened in Latin America, what happened in China. That's too sketchy. But of course, I could not write an alternative history of the world. It was a novel. But I wish I had, you know, somebody helping me see more detail in uh, this hypothetical transition. Thank you. 